Hello, I'm James Marriott and welcome to the Unlimited podcast connecting business across the Sheffield City region. Every month we bring you exclusive interviews and get under the surface of the stories you read in the magazine. Now today is a special episode as we look at the road to net zero in the Sheffield City region. Now we've all heard this term net zero. What exactly does it mean? Well, put simply, net zero refers to the balance between the amount of greenhouse gas produced and the amount removed from the atmosphere. So we reach net zero when the amount we add is no more than the amount taken away. But how can we achieve it? And well, why does it matter? Well, from countries and companies to individuals, tackling climate change is top of the agenda right now. And one way that we can help do it is to reach net zero. Now, the UK became the world's first major economy to set a target of being net zero by 2050. In today's episode, we've assembled a panel from major businesses across the Sheffield City region. Thank you to Amoresco for sponsoring this special roundtable event. Amoresco is a clean tech integrator and a renewable energy asset developer, owner and operator. Amoresco has delivered over $10 billion in energy solutions and raised financing for $3.5 billion for this project. It operates over 500 megawatts of generation and its projects cut 12.5 million tonnes of CO2 in 2020. The Unlimited podcast is hosted by Captivate.fm, the easiest way to create and distribute your podcast. And it's produced and edited by Sound Media. Visit wearesoundmedia.com. Now, if you'd like to find out more about how to create a podcast for your business, then drop me a line, james at unlimitedbusiness.com. That's james at unltdbusiness.com. Now, let's meet the panel as we talk about the road to net zero. Hi, uh, I'm Karthik Suresh, and I look after consultancy services at Amoresco. Hi, I'm Kate, and I'm a client relationship manager at City Taxis. Hi, I'm Jack Kidder. I'm the Responsible Business Manager for Henry Boots PLC. Hi, I'm Ava. I'm the Business Assurance Officer for AES Seal PLC. Hi, I'm April. I'm the Marketing and Communications Manager at Killies Limited. Hi, I'm Charlotte Killy. I am the Head of Sales at Killies Limited in Hansworth. Hi, I'm Catherine Mann. I'm the Corporate Solicitor at Elwin Mitchell. Hi, I'm Dave Stones. I'm Sales and Marketing Director at B&B Press. Well, it's quite a panel that we have uh, assembled for our discussion today. Um, I'm going to jump straight in with the first question that we are going to be asking you all. So we're looking to find out how your organisation is developing its capabilities in terms of people and technologies and whether you're taking a people-first approach or a tech-first approach. Um, Kartek, if we could kind of get you just to set the scene a little bit on this question, please, before we go around the panel. Thanks, James. So um, just very quickly for background, Amorisco is an energy energy services company. Um, So we do a lot of large-scale projects and retrofits and developments and so on. So when it comes to putting money into large projects, you know, that, that's kind of our background. But what we found a few years ago was as organizations looked at sustainability, it wasn't really as simple as an infrastructure project or a development project. It was much more about transitioning organization and doing large-scale changes. And so you couldn't just go in and say, here's an engineering project that makes sense. 
because you had to get buy-in from a whole range of stakeholders that typically wouldn't necessarily have involvement. You know, marketing, they are much more interested. The lawyers are interested in how that works and whether the, the, the contracts are the right kinds of contracts. Um, customers are asking for evidence that uh, you're actually making progress on, on, on sustainable uh, activities. So what we found is as we started talking to organisations, the, the technology and the processes and the systems and the finance actually were the easy parts. It was actually much more about how do you engage the organization, get all these various stakeholders into the conversation and get a consistent and coherent aligned view. And that can take a few years in organizations. Um, so really that's the, that's the background, I think, that the purpose of these, this conversation, others like that. Um, and the reason we're supporting conversations is to help um, people share with each other what they've learned and how we can align organizations to, to become more sustainable. Okay, I'm going to ask Jack first about this one, please. Yeah, I, I think it's a really important question because I think the two the two elements to success and sustainability, the people and the technology, do go hand in hand. I think for us as a business in the built environment sector, we've been conscious and proactive environmental management for a long time. But I think I think we all recognise that there's a massive step change in in the race to getting the UK to net zero and the way that our business is, is really looking to approach this is we always say that people are our greatest asset. And I think that to be successful with this, you could have all the technology and all the processes in place, but if your people aren't bought into it, then you're only ever going to get so far. So for us, engagement with our, our colleagues, with our partners, with our customers, our stakeholders is a massive, massive part of, of how we intend to tackle the problem and to to really kind of almost create a bit of a mission of excitement around net zero carbon because I think the, the issue of climate change is such a huge such a huge potential problem it can feel very overwhelming for a lot of us can't it when you when you start looking into it and reading the statistics so for us it's how, how can we create a sense of excitement and this is a mission our business can tackle and actually it's about adaptability and, and kind of adapting our business to to really make a difference in this so hopefully this answers the question but for me it's about I think the first step is about empowering people making sure they feel informed making sure they feel uh, you know educated on what their role is on, on what they can do um, and also inspired that they want to, to make a difference here and then obviously to kind of make that happen that's when you start looking at what technology you need to put in place to to make their jobs easier in, in doing that and, and to make sure that actually as we all look to reduce our emissions we've got the right tools in place. Well, thank you, Jack. Um, Kate at City Taxes, um, I'm guessing this is obviously a real big deal for you, the very nature of, of, of what your organisation does. Um, yeah, thanks, James. Um, so, yeah, for us, again, it's it is going to be kind of like a mix of the two. So um, driver engagement is obviously a main, the main thing because ultimately um, where most of our emissions come from is the, is the cars on the road. So um, we do have some quite ambitious plans to have a fully electric fleet by 2025. Um, but with that, there comes obviously the driver engagement. There is also the side of the, um, the infrastructure that needs to be in place for electric vehicles. Um, there is the question of, will the vehicle range um, be at a certain level um, before the infrastructure is there for, for electric charging of cars? So, um, yeah, again, I think it replicating what Jack said, I think it is obviously a big part is the driver engagement and the employee engagement, but also um, we need to make sure the infrastructure is there for, for the, the capabilities of it. Thank you. Uh, Catherine at Erwin Mitchell. 
Hi. Well, as a law firm, we are a people-driven business, and um, the three key pillars of our business are our clients, our colleagues, and our communities. Um, we've developed our technological processes, and the pandemic has, has given people an opportunity to kind of embrace those, even if they were reluctant to before. I'd say I'd echo what Jack says that the technology can only be fully utilised when people are on board. And this is as much a behavioural change as it is a technological one. All right, let's go to um, to Dave Stone's BNB Press. Yeah, I think just to echo what some of the guys have said already, I, I think, I mean, we've been on our journey for sustainability for like the last 20 years. And, you know, it's it, it's a really important thing for us. And I think what Jack said about the combination of the technology and, and the people, I mean, obviously, working for a print company, there's a, probably a bit of a thought process that goes prints using you know cutting down trees we create in paper and we printing but there's a lot of studies that have, have been produced that digital traffic online traffic can be just as damaging for the environment as what printing on paper can and obviously things have moved on a lot in terms of sustainable papers recycled papers and, and so on and so forth um I, I think from our perspective it has to be the people with the technology but the one thing i would say and i was mentioning this to dan yesterday was there's a lot of there's a lot of a, a thought process around you know particularly in our sector where you know we can it, it's a badge you know and a lot of people pay lip service to getting an accreditation for example we're not like that we live and breathe it and i think that's got to be it's so important and picking up what kate and what jack said and and, and catherine it's about getting the team on side and getting the people on side because they're the face of the business. You can't have a company website or a company brochure, for example, saying one thing, but then you're not living and breathing it and it's not embedded. So we spent a lot of time um, trying to get everybody on board. It's been a challenge. You know, it's not, it's not been easy. Um, but I think now with a lot of the things that are going on with, you know, David Attenborough's hyping everything up and Greta and all these different conferences, I think, it's now more important than ever and there's now more exposure than ever. And probably people are under more pressure than ever to be accountable and to do the right thing. Um, but I, I, if, if I had to kind of make a decision rather than sit on the fence, I'd go down the people angle, you know, marginally. Brilliant. Um, Ava, what's your take on this? Ava from AES Seal. Um, so I obviously work for ASL, which is a manufacturing business. Um, so manufacturing is sort of seen as a, a point where there's a lot of emissions that are obviously emitted into the environment. And there's quite sort of a bad name in terms of obviously the impacts that manufacturing can have. So as a business, we've always taken sustainability and sort of our environmental impact sort of to heart. We're very, we're very passionate in what we do. Um, the products we actually sell do prevent um, harmful substances from being leaked into the environment. So a lot of, obviously, what we do sell protects the environment. Um, so throughout the business, in terms of the people, we have quite a few sort of uh, sales guys and technical engineers that are very passionate about the products because it's doing the right thing. It's helping to make sure that no matter whether you're in pulp and paper industry, oil and gas, whatever industry it may be, we're doing the right thing from the products that we sell but in terms of sort of looking at the net zero point of view and where we're going with it um the business offers a lot of sustainability support so personally from my perspective um i work within our business assurance department so i work very closely with our sustainability officer um we offer one-to-one -one training on behavioral impacts of 
our employees. So we basically say, what's the impact of you making a cup of tea a day? What's the impact of you doing that? And we talk through simple steps such as that. Um, recently, well, I say recently, but over the last couple of years, we introduced a investment policy to prevent global warming as a business. So the policy outlines sort of raising giving people the voice so people are able to sort of raise their concerns in terms of what we're doing wrong or what we could do better. Um, and it gives people the option to be able to bring sustainability and environmental projects um, to, the, to the attention of the board. So we say any sustainability project that is likely to have a return on investment of eight years, even though it is actually probably going to increase to 20 years. We want that to be brought to the attention of our board of directors um, and a decision has to be made within three months as to whether we go ahead with it. Um, that includes things such as the, a building management system on site. We've got UPS and Virtue Energy Storage. We've got all sorts that we've obviously done on site and we try and give as many people as possible the option to, to raise their concerns um, and how we can sort of improve our business moving forward. So, in terms of the people engagement, we do a lot. We try to get, whether it's someone who's actually operating a machine or whether it's marketing, whoever it may be, they all they can all go to the board and say, have we considered this option um, to sort of reduce our, our carbon footprint? Brill, um, let's go to April next, please. So I think I'm really just going to echo what everyone else has said in terms of it's a balance between the two. Um, we, as a cleaning company, we understand the, uh, the obstacles we have to overcome in terms of chemicals that we can use, in terms of transporting goods. We import a lot of products from different manufacturers around the world, which obviously contributes to um, emissions. So we have to consider this in lots of different ways. Um, we work very closely with the actual manufacturers in ways to reduce this. We also are introducing lots of new technologies um, in terms of new products, which um, either reduce chemicals, so they are completely chemical free. We have them that it's reducing um, transport because it's such a, it's a much smaller product, etc. So there's lots of different ways we are trying to combat that within the cleaning industry. But as everyone else says, we need the buy-in of our customers. If people do not understand what we're selling or they do not have the understanding of how, what they're going to achieve by buying our products, we can. it, it's, it goes hand in hand, doesn't it? Um, and not only that, it's not just the customers, it's the staff as well. So not just uh, as in uh, what we're selling, it's how we work as a company. The ethos of the company needs to be sustainable and it's something that we drive throughout the company to be more sustainable. So as I say, very much like everyone else has said, it works hand in hand. You can't really have one without the other, in our opinion. Thanks, April. Seems to be a little bit of consensus forming. Um, Charlotte, anything that you want to add to that? Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, so just um, following on from what April said, really, obviously, we are a cleaning supplies business. So we do chemical free um, cleaning equipment, um, which is cutting out, you know, the chemicals going and, and bottles and things going to landfill. Um, so from that point of view, it's... Um, you know that's that's really important to us that although we have been selling chemicals for a number of years that we've kind of looked into products and working with the people to get them to understand how this can kind of benefit them and um, we've also ventured into like robotic cleaning equipment um which is 
something that we're having a lot of uh, takers with at the moment, which is obviously freeing up uh, cleaning operatives time. So for instance, we've deployed a number of cleaning robots into a lot of hospitals recently, um, which then means that, like I said, it's, it's freeing up the cleaning operatives time as people to uh, to concentrate on the, the more finer detail areas. So uh, so yeah, it is a real balance between uh, between the products and the people for sure. Karthik, I'll, I'll come back to you. Any any of any thoughts from from you on kind of what you've heard there from from people, or any follow up questions? Well, I think what you know, Ava, Ava talked about just then was a really amazing example of, of clarity, because you effectively said, you know, here's the ROI we need. If there are projects that need to come to the attention of the of the board, and they have to make a decision in three months, when you have that kind of clarity on the decision making process organization is really well placed to make decisions. You mentioned the, the battery storage and so on and site. Those are actually quite complex business cases to put together. And it's hard to convince people of the values and there are lots of arguments for, you know, for and against. So I would I really take that as an example of you know, when things are clear, you can move fast. Brilliant. Okay, we're going to move on to um, question two. What do businesses need to learn to take advantage of opportunities in this space from things like securing grants and rebates to developing and reskilling staff to manage the challenges they will face? Again, do you want to set the scene for this question for a little bit for us there? I will do that. Thanks a lot. I, I think this follows up quite nicely again from, from the previous discussion, which is, um, you know, why would you make a decision to do something? Most businesses will do it because there is an economic case for it. There is something in there that adds enterprise value, adds value to the organization. And if you have a bankable project, then there's no shortage of money and finance to go you know, to go about doing this. Now, Amoresco, for example, last year, we, we alone raised $120 million to invest in this space. We're building a bunch of new natural gas plants. We're investing in solar plants. We have money available for bankable projects. And that's just a tiny drop because, you know, last year ESG funds raised about $7 billion to invest into companies. And again, if you follow the news, a whole bunch of large companies have raised bond financing, specifically around green, green initiatives. So the finance is not a problem. The issue is, is bankable projects that you can take through uh, the decision-making process. And in the UK, interestingly, you know, if, even if you leave aside the fact that um, – if you can create something that adds enterprise value, there is money available for it. We are just in the middle of a huge transition where the UK government is providing grants and financing in a range of opportunities. You have something like the Industrial Energy Transformation Fund. Um, again, for large organisations, about a billion pounds in funding for net zero innovation. And for the last five, six years, this is the thing called the Energy Intensive Industry Scheme, where you can essentially get 20% off your cost of energy if you you know, operate in certain sectors. So I think the UK government has made a huge effort um, to try and create the conditions for change. Um, and really for organisations right now, everybody should be looking around saying, well, is there something in there that we can put in? Is there some value we can take in? How do we take advantage of these government-sponsored uh, opportunities to, to make to, to take the first step? Okay, uh, let's see who we're going to ask first about this one. Let's go to uh, Ava, please, at ASCL. Thank you. Um, so as a business for us, we have actually recently, um, in, in quarter one of 2021, we started rolling out a sustainability competency framework. So we operate 
globally we're in 104 countries so we are rather a large business um and we obviously we are very conscious in terms of our emissions um, that are associated so as a result of that we um took the decision we in fact in 2019 we the ASLPLC so our UK operations um achieved net zero for scope one and two emissions um recently we have just achieved net zero well we've gone beyond net zero for 2020 in across scope one, two and three emissions. So the UK is sort of the leading point for net zero um, for AESCL. That being said, we are obviously going to roll out our net zero journey across all our countries that we operate in. So we found it was important that we needed to make sure that we've got the buy-in from people globally. So as a result, I've pulled together a sustainability competency framework. I've rolled that out across to our global branch heads. Um, we obviously offer it out to other people as well in terms of other individuals who've got an interest in sustainability and the environment. So from that perspective, we're trying to get everybody sort of at a baseline point. There's been a little bit of difficulty in terms of buying from different countries, um, whether that be that they've not signed up to obviously um, it's to sort of the United Nations, we take into consideration the sustainable development goals as well. So we're, we're doing what we can as a business to try and raise awareness of, of sustainability and get everybody on the same path. We have committed to the, by the 1st of April 2029, we will be net zero globally across scope one, two, and three. So we, ha- we do have very strong commitments. Obviously, there's a lot of work, but we're trying to implement as many sustainable um, projects so we're trying to, for example, um, we're, we're looking at our American branch at the moment. We've just completed an energy study. So we'll look at implementing voltage optimization out there, which is what we've done in the UK. And we'll replicate that across our sites. So there's a lot of work, obviously, moving forward. It's going to be very difficult. Um, but at the same time, it's easier having that buy-in from getting our people on board um, and having that sustainable sustainability program in place. I hope that sort of answers the question. Thank you, uh, Ava. Absolutely. Um, Dave at b b Press. So if I just tell you a little bit about our, our kind of latest initiative, um, we we are now, and, and like Ava, I'm flying the flag for Rotherham. So we are, we are net zero on um, stages one and two, and we have been for probably a couple of years. But we're one of 15 print companies in the UK that are fully certified carbon balanced printers, right? So we went through a process of measuring our emissions. We have to reduce year on year where possible. And then on the areas which obviously are unavoidable, because like Ava said, there are always going to be areas that are unavoidable. We use the carbon balance print program, which is supported by um, the World Land Trust. Anybody that doesn't know who World Land Trust is, obviously look at those guys, search them. The chief patron is David Attenborough and pretty much whatever he says has got anyway, right? So, um, you know, he's, 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 he's the number one. But basically, every time we produce a job now, a print job, as standard, we carbon balance the emissions. Now, whether that customer or that brand wants their the logo on, for want of a better word, or not, as standard that print project will be carbon balanced. Now, the money that is raised and donated to World Land Trust obviously protects seriously, you know, diverse 
geologically threatened habitats. So particularly there's a big project in Vietnam. So there's an argument about planting trees and, you know, are they good? Are they not? Are they going to ever soak up enough carbon? We need to as quick. So for us, the passion in the project is about supporting projects which are already soaking up carbon and these trees are being cut down. Now, last year, we protected 280,000 square meters of critically endangered carbon soaking up trees by being a carbon balance printer, right? Now, that set the scene to answer the question. We never got any financial support to become a certified carbon balance printer, right? Now, was that because I didn't look or was that because the process of trying to get funding is really difficult, you know, and it's often means tested. I'm not suggesting that the green side of it would be means tested, by the way, it probably wouldn't. But the process and, and, and is just so difficult. The other challenge that we had when we set off on this journey was, do we charge customers for the benefit of having a carbon balanced job in terms of adding value to it? And quite quickly, we realized that there are a lot of companies out there in our region, outside of our region, that on a website, they talked about how sustainable they wanted to be. They talked about how ethical they wanted to be and all this, that and the other. But when push comes to shove, they wouldn't pay more for a carbon balanced project. So in the end, as a business, what we've done is we've said, we will donate the money to the World Land Trust. So if you come to us for a print job, we automatically balance that and we bond the cost of, of producing that. So the investment for us, and you know, we're we're a five million pound turnover business in Rotherham. We're not, you know, we're not the size of AAS Seal. Um, so it's really tricky and it's really difficult. And you know, we've got to make sure that we're doing all the right things for all the right reasons. And and it is a challenge. Um, but in terms of like the funding side, I think there does need to be better, more visibility locally. I think. And, I, and it may be because I'm not looking in the right places or I don't hang out in the right places, but I've not really seen anything that kind of shouts out at me and says, you know, if you are a business that wants to try and get, you know, more energy efficient, more greener, this funding is available. It's available right now. Again, some people on this call might have seen that kind of, you know, publicity, but but I've certainly not. Thank you, Dave. It's interesting. And there's some stuff that we'll we'll visit in the next question that, that I think will play very into kind of what you've just been um what you've just been saying there. Um Charlotte at um Killies, what's what's your thoughts on this? So basically from our take on it, I mean really other than kind of um we are part of the Chamber of Commerce and um we kind of seek advice from them in regards to um how to go further with kind of fundings and grants and things like that really but other than that we we kind of just in the early stages of implementing this and we, we haven't really had much experience so yeah we would be uh, looking to see kind of further advice on stuff like this really thanks charlotte i don't know april is there anything you want to add to to, to that I think the only thing I would add is obviously we are a smaller company, so we are we would be looking for more local funding. Um, it's not something, as Charlotte said, we are in the early stages, so it is something that we are looking at um, as a company. It is part of our ethos to be greener. Um, a lot of our products are very um, sustainable in that sense, um, but a lot of our most sustainable products are what we import so for example we have an IMOP that we get from Holland 
um, and they support charities in the use of in the um, where they uh, supply water to developing com- countries in as almost as a mirror effect. They say we use eighteen thousand liters of water. They will then send that to a developing country. Country. So when you think of it like that, they're doing a great job, and that's one of the main initiatives that we love about the company that's ended up we've ended up working with them alongside the technology so we do look for these incentives when we partner with somebody for example we work with another company that's in Canada they have a lot of accreditations but again it's abroad so for us as a company we use the initiatives in in ways to um to get suppliers and to work with people but for us as a actual company within England within Sheffield it's something that we definitely need to work on better and it is definitely something we're aiming for for the next few years in terms of our strategy but yeah in terms of funding it's something that we we definitely need more support on. Well thank you uh, April. Kate at City Taxes. Thanks, James. Um, so, yeah, we we already do work with the council quite closely. I suppose sort of pre-pandemic, um, we'd been working with the council on sort of understanding the, the green air zones in Sheffield. There has been a bit of a, a delay with this with obviously the past year. Um, so I think we're kind of in a position now where we'd like to get a better understanding of what the stance is going to be for the Sheffield City region. But through those partnerships that we've already started to form and the conversations that we've started to have, we ultimately do need it is something that we, we are going to have to do as a kind of a something in partnership with with the council with the city region and um in order to meet our goals um talking about like an idea of figures that we're working with so it's about thirty thousand, i'd say an average for an electric car so if you can imagine what that equates to when you've got two thousand vehicles on the road it, you, you're talking like 60 million so we're not playing with small numbers so we ultimately do need some backing from somewhere to be able to achieve our goals which is obviously going to be a, a huge thing we were lucky enough to actually partner with renault so um in 2019 we have test drove um, I think 11 um, electric vehicles. So we've, we've given them out to drivers to give us feedback, um, let us know what the concerns are about being able to actually drive these vehicles, whether it's going to work. Typically, your average range, you're looking at about 150 to 200 miles on an electric car. So if you imagine how many miles a taxi driver does on a day-to-day basis, it doesn't really fit into you know to their schedule to stop and charge the car for hours on end and also the, there isn't enough charges in Sheffield at the moment so that's another thing that I think we need to work quite closely with them on um another side of things that we worked on an, an idea that we did have is I don't know if anybody saw our um electric charging hub launch so we, we it was basically a container um and the, the idea was for it to have toilets a, a drink stop and then to have eight electric charging points around the edges of the um the container it was actually um the Church of England that we were speaking to about potentially putting, they, they own a lot of land. Um, so we were speaking to them about whether we could potentially put some, um, the, the hubs on those or whether we could rent land off people to basically put the hubs, but also it's in everyone's sort of on everyone's agenda to, you know, to, to hopefully achieve these ambitious goals um, and to become more sustainable. So uh, there's a number of different people that we've, we've been having conversations with to try and, get to where we need to be because ultimately and I'm sure everybody's the same we can't do it alone it's it's going to be a joint thing it's going to be such a huge shift 
um, when we do eventually get there. So, um, yeah, the, the council is going to be a, play a big part in in us being able to achieve our um, our goal of being the first electric fleet by twenty twenty five. Oh, thank you, Kit. Uh, Jack Kidder at Henry Boot. Thanks, James. And it, it's so interesting hearing what other people have, what are the challenges people have had, and and kind of ideas on this. And it's a really relevant question for us because we we're going to be unveiling our kind of net zero carbon framework plans later this year. And I think for me, one of the kind of key things on this has been, so one of our corporate values is adaptability. And, you know, we're a 135-year-old business and you, you, have to, you have to be willing to change and adapt to kind of create that long-term sustainability as a business. And so for us, it was about, and kind of going back to, to Karthik's point earlier, it was about looking at what are the drivers for a business to, to want to kind of take on a challenge like this. And of course, and, and, and central to this, there's the ethical and there's the responsible uh, points and they're, they're really important, but there is also the commercial. And I think the way we're trying to kind of approach the issue is, is looking at actually how, how does this kind of future-proof our, our business for long-term sustainability? And with the, you know, with the kind of infrastructure that, that Kate and, and Ava's talked about that you need to, to kind of tackle reducing your emissions, it does involve investment, it does involve upfront costs. And I think clarity on the kind of grants and rebates that are available is really important. And I think it's will really help businesses as we go forward to, to kind of increase that clarity. But the way I think the way we're trying to look at it is, is almost to see this as an investment in the future. And almost not to try to look at it as just you know costs to the business in terms of making those changes but actually how does it kind of create long-term savings and long-term opportunities for us in the future on a commercial basis so um and a big part of that will be about you know what what kind of changes to skills do we need in the workforce in the future and, and what kind of technology will we need so yeah it's it's challenging but i think that the best way to look at it is like i said earlier is it's about how you kind of create that excitement of opportunity around it rather than just view it as a negative issue Thank you, Jack. And uh, Catherine at Irwin Mitchell. Hi. Well, I don't think there's a fixed rule for, for businesses in this area, as the impact of um, business operations is incredibly sector dependent, um, and the cost of change may also be very different. I think professional services firms, such as law firms, um, will naturally have a much lower carbon footprint than, um, than the energy intensive industries shouldn't be congratulating themselves on having a much lower output because that is the nature of their business. Although I must say pre-pandemic, we did use a lot of paper um, and have been moving now to more electronic files, which is um, which is always good, but it, it, we don't have the same impact as, um, as some of the other people have spoken today. One thing we can do is, is look at other things such as um, the SG credentials of pension funds or the impacts of other businesses in our supply chains. And uh, I think the most important step for, for businesses, for all businesses, really is to understand their current impact. Um, that will be different. But if you understand your current impact, then you can think about how you can change it. And then you can horizon scan more effectively for, um, for future opportunities. Thank you, Catherine. And thank you all for, uh, for your answers um, there. Let's go back to, uh, to Karthik for his uh, reflections on, on that. Thanks, James. Um, again, just picking out, you know, Dave in particular, your story, that, that's really interesting because you've taken a position and essentially paid for your customers to get a benefit that hopefully they know about, but, you know, uh, regardless of what they've, they've chosen to do, you've decided that everything you're going to do is going to be offset through, through the mechanism. And 
I think there's, there's kind of two things there almost. You've taken a position that I think is leading edge and very brave. And what tends to happen in these situations as well is some organization will go, well, okay, if we, if we say, you know, offset stuff through um, a, a woodland project, is that the right thing to do? Because is that greenwashing or is that not greenwashing? How do you know about those things? Um, and I think, we'll, again, we'll go on the next section uh, in, in terms of questioning. But I think what's quite interesting about this is there's, there is a need for guidance around this. So we don't keep um, trying to bash each other saying, well, this is better than that. We need a clear, clear framework to be, to be able to say, you know, how do we rank woodland versus um, renewables versus something else? And so organizations can take a mix of decisions that, 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 that's uh, best for them. But again, I think in the next section, we'll, we'll start to see that's actually emerging right now. So while you're a, you're a leader and an early doctor in that space, it's a good model to then show other organizations what they can do. As we've kind of touched on there, so the um, the the third question for our panel is is really about the government role in in this and whether the government needs to play a, a greater role in providing the clarity that's needed on where the investment needs to be prioritised. Um, anything that you wanted to add to that before we put it to the uh, the panel, Karthek? Um, yes, again, I think that there's, there's a few things in there um, because we've been watching this space now for 15 years and you know, things keep changing and developing over time. But some of the most recent changes, the thing that are, are quite interesting, is large organisations are increasingly required to report on their emissions. They always weren't as large as organisations, that's kind of getting smaller and smaller. So you have things like what's called streamlined energy and carbon reporting, where there is a, an obligation to report on, on your emissions in your annual report. So that was for, for a couple of years, I think reporting was the way that um, government was trying to get people to look at the situation. And then what we've seen more recently is, is the EU trying to cover the taxonomy almost of trying to rank different kinds of industries and their, and their emissions potential and, and what you can do in terms of abatement. Uh, and again, very recently, just in the last few months, you have the government coming out with um, procurement updates. So from uh, the 1st of October this year, anybody applying for a government contract, set of a government contract for more than £5 million, will need to show a, a plan towards net zero and have that on their websites. They're going to have to document these things and prove it. And what tends to happen is once you have a requirement for larger suppliers to do it, their procurement processes will filter through to smaller suppliers who will also then demonstrate their plans in order to be considered uh, for business. So I think the clarity um, is coming down almost because government is saying we want people who work with us to conform these standards because we want to be net zero by 2050. And that seems to be rippling down from what we're seeing. Um, and again, going back to the point Ava, you made earlier, um, the procurement arm um, needs to think very hard about green procurement. I think Jack, you've been in a similar situation where your buying power is going to make the difference between choosing one supplier who has a good green story and one that doesn't. And with the same product, you'll probably start choosing somebody who has a better green story, driven by the need to comply further the, the chain of large and larger organisations. So I think that's something kind of worth reflecting on almost and seeing what positions you're in, because it is, it is almost what one of our, our clients calls a licence to do a business. Increasingly, your green story is that licence. Okay, I'm um, going to ask uh, Dave Stearns for his thoughts on this one first. Yeah, so just just following on, um, I mean, you know, as I said earlier, we we are, and I'm not suggesting that other companies are not doing things right, you know, doing doing what we do, but we're a small team, and you know, I feel that we do we do do things in the right way. I think one of the frustrations that we've had, and I and I kind of touched on it earlier, 
was something you just mentioned then, Karthik, was around procurement and buying decisions and the whole decision-making process, is that when we set off on our journey um, to be a certified carbon balance printer, we did it for various reasons. You know, I'm not going to lie. There was a sustainability angle. There was the, you know, did it give us a USP? Yes, it absolutely did. And I, and I think that probably the mistake that I particularly made was the sell was going to be a lot easier than what it was because obviously, you know, we were putting it out there saying, you know, we are the greenest print company in, in South Yorkshire, blah, blah, blah. But then it's part of the education process is letting procurement and people that are, are, are buying what we sell um, understand what that actually means. And I think for me, if the government to get hold of this, for want of a better word, and start making it more of a priority and it becoming more inclusive on you know tenders and, and companies' decision-making, I'd love that right now because we still, a lot of the time, are still getting you know, you're a little bit more expensive, so I'm going to use somebody else. And I guess looking around on on the Zoom call, you know, and I'm and I'm thinking, you know, I'll just fly some examples. It's like like Kate at City, and you know, would would a passenger pay more to travel in a environmentally friendly vehicle as opposed to a standard vehicle, for example? Would I pay more to go on a flight where I could carbon balance the flight versus a standard flight? And I think when we went into this we went into it with a fact that said 72 percent of people particularly young people and bearing in mind our target audience are marketing professionals 25 to 40 years of age if i could kind of bracket it in that in that age bracket 72 percent of people within that age range are making decisions on purchasing based on their social economic uh, social ethical and sustainable values right and that's fact that google it there's, there's like loads of statistics so for me for the government to get involved and almost make it mandatory that people need to be green in order to be awarded contracts to be to, to work with a business if the, if the shift was totally not about price not about delivery not about quality of product is a given but seeing green credentials for want of a better word the highest part of the decision making process i'd love that now i don't know and i'm interested in what carthage view is after when, when everybody's done their roundup we may be a many 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 years away from that actually being a thing thank you uh, dave um i'm going to ask april at uh, killies next so it's very much like what Dave just said, to be honest, um, we see that they need to be more clear and exactly the same in the sense of is money the most important thing? Where is it going to be directed? So in, term, in terms of decision making and things like that. So we've got we've got customers that are going to benefit from buying our environmental products. So we are working on a big contract with Travelodge at the moment in terms of they are buying our products because they are going to save them as a company money. So although, um, so they are going to be, they're more economical, they can sell it from their perspective to their um, customers that they're looking after their health, et cetera. 
Um, they're not putting VOCs into the environment. So all that kind of thing is definitely a benefit for us. Um, but what exactly the same as what Dave's just said, What what is the purpose of what we're trying to do? What is it that the government are wanting us to focus on? And I think at the moment, I think people are only willing to to go down this route if it if it's saving them money I don't think money is a a big factor in sense of they're not willing to pay more I think we need more education we need more persistence by the government in sense of regardless of price regardless of that it needs to be done and what area it needs to go into and um, it's more of a work with us I mean we work with government companies we work with hospitals we work with prisons etc um, and we put these kind of products into there so but what is their ultimate focus where do they want us to prioritize more than anything um, so yeah I kind of just echoing what Dave said I hope that answers the question <laughs> Thanks, April. Uh, Charlotte, what would you add? Yeah, so just um, to add to that, really, obviously us um, as a business and, and to kind of really answer the question, you know, did the government pay a greater role and, you know, clarity with it? I think it would be great to get, um, you know, the more more clarity for sure. Um, and I know, obviously, as a business, we are looking at kind of every angle that we can do in regards to um, our, you know, circular economy, making our vehicles, whether it's our demo vehicles or our servicing vehicles, making them, um, you know, hybrid vehicles, so they, you know, and electric vehicles. Um, so when, when the time comes around to change those, that's what we've already uh, looked to do. But really, kind of the incentive there for for us as a business and and, and really have them. Um, yeah that more clarity would be would be really fantastic and and, and the incentive to kind of understand and how how that could be pushed um so yeah thank you charlotte uh catherine owen mitchell well i think um depending on the industry and changes to processes involved there can be significant cost in adapting processes to achieve net zero objectives and i think it's somewhat naive to expect companies to potentially disadvantage themselves against competitors by putting prices up or to sacrifice profit. Although I was very interested in, in what Dave said earlier, I think that's a really interesting, um, really interesting approach. I therefore think that in addition to incentives, regulation is key to um, to actually having to securing real change. Um, and in addition to clarity, which I think everyone has said that we we do need, we need cash, we need the infrastructure, and we need the appropriate technical expertise to implement change i like the idea of um uh, considering additional procurement obligations um in supply chains but i i do think there's a concern that it's an additional um additional burden on small businesses i think it's particularly important with with this whole um this whole approach and moving towards net zero that we ensure that smaller companies aren't left behind because they don't have the big cash to stump up on making the change and that's where government can really help with providing funding to um to make sure that everyone can go on that journey yeah great point thank you uh catherine uh jack at henry boots what's your thoughts yeah thank you james and uh, just building on what what catherine said really you know i think clarity from government is is absolutely critical in this space it, it really is but i think what's been really positive and i think reassuring for me it, you know 
over the past year has just seen the way the business community and in our sector and others has absolutely rolled their sleeves up and cracked on with this issue. And, you know, whilst obviously clarity from government will always be supportive and necessary, what's been really, really positive is that it's not preventing the business community from taking action. You know, businesses are setting targets and they are starting to, to deliver against them. And I think what's what is necessary though, and, and we're starting to see examples of this is, is alignment. And I think kind of building on what, what Catherine was saying is about kind of setting setting the standards that are expected. So particularly for us as a PLC, we obviously report annually. And, um, you know, a recent example was the task force on climate related financial disclosure, uh, the recommendations becoming mandatory. And that that will provide a lot of kind of clarity and, and um in our industry for for how what actions businesses are taking and, and aligning that i think on procurement um because i think that's a really important point and and you know echoing again i think it was what april was saying that the approach we're very much taking is when people are buying from henry boot is looking at actually how how is our decarbonizing helping them you know how is it kind of supporting their ambitions but actually and and again to build on what catherine was saying what's what's really important for us is we've got a very diverse supply chain um, ranging from very, very large businesses to very small SMEs. And it, and it's absolutely critical for businesses to be, particularly large businesses like ours, to, to make sure you're supporting your supply chain. And whilst obviously we, we will have expectations of what we need our supply chain to do to help us uh, reach our own sustainability targets, is how you can collaborate and how you can share information and share knowledge and and support them because ultimately it's a question of resource and, and for SMEs this is a big big challenge when they've got you know coming out of a pandemic and they've got limited resources anyway so I think corporate collaboration is going to be massively important in this space regardless of of, of, of the government really. Uh, thank you uh, Jack. Ava? Um, thank you so sort of touching on what Jack's just mentioned I think in terms of corporate collaboration um, ASCL actually launched a Better World Not Solutions campaign. And the main idea is sort of trying to get other businesses, whether they be SMEs or large businesses, to actually adopt an investment policy, um, obviously to prevent global warming. And as part of that, we are trying to get other businesses to adopt a policy, whether it's four people running a business, whether it's thousand people running the business. Um, and in return, we actually offer free of charge net zero training. Um, so there's obviously no cost to a business. All we ask is they adopt the policy and publicise it. Um, so sort of going to the procurement aspects, we are looking at our supply chain. We're looking at who our biggest suppliers are. We obviously, um, as similar to Jack, we purchase from smaller SMEs um, and we try, we want to try to get them all on the journey. We understand that larger businesses are probably going to make that move sooner um, because they're, they're more likely to have the funds um, and the resource. But I think in terms of what government can do, they need to help. SMEs, obviously larger businesses as well, but starting with the SMEs, I, I can't remember the statistic off the top of my head, but I think it's something like 90% of businesses in the UK are actually SMEs. So if, if we get that support from government, that is going to take a large chunk of, of where the emissions are coming from um, and help provide them some sort of resource, whether it be sort of educational wise or whether it be financially. Um, I think there does need to be quite a few changes and I think it needs to come very quickly um, in order to reach the, the obviously the UK's targets um, as well. That, that's sort of all I've got to say on that really. 
That's great. Thank you, uh, Ava. April, you've got something you want to uh, want to add there? Yeah, I think Jack really hit the nail on the head there in the sense that we are working with suppliers um, that are much bigger. They've got much bigger budgets. They can do what we want to do. And this is why we're making very ed- educated decisions to work with them. But as a much smaller company who has been affected by COVID, as I'm sure everybody has, but as a small company affected by COVID, it does affect what we can put in place. We obviously have the drive to do it. We obviously know it needs to be done. Um, but as a company, um, I think we we foresee what needs to happen over the next few years and we really, really want to work more closely with the government and get the support we need. It could be the government, it could be local councils, it can be in many different ways, but we need we do need that support, unfortunately. We do not have the luxury that our our customers do. I mean, working with Travel Lodge in, as an example, where they're putting all these things in place, it's amazing to see and we love that we're supporting that but it's, they have the budget, they have that capability. Brill, uh, we've not heard from uh, Kate at City Taxes on uh, on this one yet. So Kate, over to you. Um, yeah, so I think just replicating what a few people have already said. So I think the clarity is going to be really important. Um, with the sort of the green air zone, which I've, I've mentioned before, um, so what that the impact that would have on the drivers, if that was just kind of put into place tomorrow, say, for example, that's going to have a really negative impact on their salaries. Um, I don't know if we'd get the buy-in. You might see less taxis in the city centre. Who knows what would happen? So I think getting that clarity as soon as possible would be amazing because obviously there'd be a cost to them if they didn't have electric. Um, on the flip side of that, I think it's a great thing if that was to put, put in place, you know, with a, a fair time scale because then it, it kind of, gets that change of mindset to everybody and people start to adapt it. Um, But if we can achieve it and we can do it, I think ultimately everyone's going to be better off. Going back to what Dave just mentioned before about would we increase our charges? I can't comment on that, but what we've looked at and the the figures that we've, um, and the things that we've addressed and the feedback that we've had so far, um, you'd hope that there would be no extra cost because ultimately um, it's once you've bought and the, the, the upfront costs of an electric car, the actual ongoing costs are much, much cheaper. Um, I think roughly some figures that I've heard, about £8 for some people to run an electric vehicle for a month, as opposed to, can you imagine, the cost of fuel for taxi drivers? I know I spend a fortune on fuel, so when I switch to electric in the next couple of weeks, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna, i save myself so much more money. So hopefully um, that wouldn't have a, a negative impact on the, the costs of tax you know, the, the running costs of taxis and the fares for customers, but also it sh- should be better for the driver's um, earnings as well. Thank you, Kate. Um, Karthik, a, a lot to take in there. Yes, there, there, were, there were a huge number of points there, I think. The one that jumps out for me for, for, for businesses, uh, you know, of all sizes really, is that idea of clarity and information about what you can do. And I think on the one hand, if you work in this industry and we spend you know, all our time thinking about these things, you know a bunch of stuff about what's happening. But for most organizations, it's a small fraction of time they can spend on that. And so bridging that gap actually is quite tricky because if I take one of the funds, for example, the Industrial Energy Transformation Fund that I talked about earlier, um, that's in two phases. And the, the, the first phase was in summer of last year, summer 2020. Um, and 39 applications got through. We got through two applications 
for a total of about two million for a company in, in, in the cold storage space. But I'll tell you that the, the, the application process wasn't simple and you have to read the details and figure out what's happening, what's included, what's not, what's not excluded, and then think about how the reviewer who's looking at it might see the application and the way in which you craft your grant request so that you maximize your chances of getting into the right pile. Um, and I don't know why, but a lot of these, these grant application processes almost are structured like a, a lottery type thing or you know, a, a beauty contest almost. And you have to kind of put this case together. And I fully understand that the, most companies that don't do this as a, as a um, day to day thing are going to struggle with filling in those forms and perhaps just gonna decide that it isn't worth doing that. And then it's actually even more impressive. Like they go off and do their own thing, put their own money into a situation when potentially it is available. Um, so I think that that clarity point is really important. Um, and they're, you know, again, again every, your, your organization is providing free training in this space, which again you know, needs to come from somewhere. You need those resources in place. And I know the councils and everybody else are trying to put support in, but it, it isn't easy. And I've got to say, the, the, the transition is happening. There is stuff out there, but um, I mean, what, what is raised for me is, is the importance of that clarity point. How do you make it simple enough for people to understand it and then take decisions that they feel have low risk you know, of going wrong and, high, and a high, high probability of decent returns? And so one final thing that we'd uh, like to put to our panel, and this is really about new technologies and, and, and which technologies are offering the most hope at the moment, what accelerators and incentives there are to help low carbon and energy efficient projects become a reality where otherwise they're, they're, they may not. Um, do you want to set the scene for us on, on this one a little bit as well, please? Thank you. I think again, this, this is an interesting one because um, you know, uh, Kate, from a uh, from your business point of view, I think this is actually quite important because um, we have a couple, of, a couple of clients as well in the automotive space, and the big thing they're facing is this whole idea that from twenty thirty you can't sell new petrol diesel vehicles. So essentially, that, that's a hard stop for a lot of organisations where they either transition to electric or go out of business, um, and that's driving a, a huge amount of interest in this space. But as you mentioned, there's capital cost of changing vehicles. There's the, are they fit for use? Do you get the mileage out of them? Um, do you have the infrastructure in place? And how do these clean air zones stuff work in terms of transitioning and, and, and getting people involved? So that's an interesting example, I think, of a market where the technology is, is, has, got, has uh, you know, gone ahead massively. The increases in battery capability and storage and costs and so on have developed. And there's a whole area of industry on battery energy storage, whether it's in, in mobile in cars or whether it's uh, in, in, in fixed installations. But you also have this hard regulation piece, Catherine, you mentioned, which is going to drive from the other side because you haven't got a choice. You have to do it by that point or, or stop operating, um, or at least operate for years after that. Um, but in most other industries, you also have, I think, this complexity. The, the technology options are fairly well understood. You know, when it comes to insulation or solar panels or you know, whatever else you need to do in terms of improving the energy efficiency of, of locations, this is not new technology, it's not complicated technology, it's actually quite straightforward in terms of the cost and the benefits. The difficulty is you have to shut down your offices for two weeks or three, three months or whatever when stuff's happening. And it's a disruption of doing all that work that, that drives decision-making. Um, and I think a lot of businesses aren't gonna go in and buy the latest technology, take a punt on something that's highly speculative and highly uh, unlikely, well, there's a chance it won't happen. That's, that's our business and we'll go through incubators and create the proof 
of why, for example, we should do battery storage on microgrid by developing demonstrator projects and so on. That will then get to the point where there's enough proof so an organization can do that more or less risk-free. Uh, the fact is, I think most organizations um, that we speak to now have gone beyond that early adopter phase. So again, you know, Dave, you're in the firmly the early adopter phase of you know an organization. But I think most other companies need to decide whether they're going to engage with this space. Um, and if they do, there is information out there, there is stuff out there. And I think we have kind of a maybe five, 10 year transition period where organizations start to see themselves kind of either gaining business or losing business in this space. And just for an example, you know, large companies are raising money entirely on the basis of the story. So for example, now, if, you, if you're a, um, a manufacturer and you go to the market for a few hundred million pounds worth of funding, you will see percentage differences in the amount of funding you get based on the green credentials that amount to millions of pounds. You know, the, the, the differential is huge. And so largely they are raising money on the promise that they will invest in sustainable operations. And so if you have a sustainable operation, and I think this is the optimism, hopefully, David, that, 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 that uh, addresses your point. From what we're seeing, being at the close end of the, the, the purchasing process, we're definitely seeing more and more people saying that environmental um, you know, credentials are a, 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 a are added value, and they will use those when making purchasing decisions. And so and that's, that's been the context here. If there are all these choices, it's really hard, it's really difficult to do, but even small steps will help pull you ahead of the competition if you have a story around it. Well, thank you. Uh, Kate at City Taxes, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll ask you about this one first. Yeah, so I, th I think there, there are an awful, awful lot of moving factors. I think the, the biggest one is, as I've already mentioned, is uh, between the sort of the range of the electric cars um, and the charging infrastructure. So ultimately, it, at the moment, it's a little bit like the chicken and egg situation, which is going to come first. Um, we're led by the government, um, the local councils on what the race is going to be between the two. Um, I know our director, Arnie, he was lucky enough to actually go to Paris to Renault um, to see a bit of a conveyor belt of the plans for what an electric car will look like. Um, and the, the, you're talking of ranges between three to 500 miles, in which case, if that was the case, you don't need the infrastructure because it's very unlikely someone's going to be traveling over 500 miles in one day. Um, and if you were to do that, you could, you know, short stop off um, charge your car and then on you go but with the ranges that we're working with at the moment they're just not enough um or what's the charging infrastructure going to look like um i've heard from um a talk from somebody who was mentioning that there's there's been ideas around um a um like a, a pad on the road or like if you were sat in traffic which would charge your car so that's like quite advanced um how long would it take to implement that um will the vehicles that can you know can go up to 500 miles will they come before that so I suppose we're just working with the, the ever moving factors um, and we'll, we'll be led by that. Thank you Kate. Uh, Dave Stearns at BNB Press. Yeah I think I think in terms of um, technology you know and, and, and equipment we our, our big print machines you know these are not these are not cheap machines you know you, you're talking I don't know best part of one and a half million pound for, for print machines and actually when lockdown came last year we'd already made an investment in terms of getting some of these two new print machines on order. And we went ahead with it because our machines were, were due to get replaced. And But more important than that, it fitted in with our 
purchasing in terms of our environmental and sustainability. And we switched our um, pressors over to um, LED pressors. So obviously, the, in terms of the power output and the way that the technology, technology dried the ink on the paper, it had massive um, sustainability um, advantages. It was quite disappointing that at the time we talk about funding where there was actually no funding to support that investment. And that investment was the best part of, like I said, about £3 million. But there was support for training, right? So there was no support to help us get the, 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 the machinery and all that investment, which is a massive investment for a company of our size, but they were for training. And I found that a bit, a, a bit, bit bizarre. But one of the things that we're also looking at, and, and, and not trying to deviate away from the question, is that being a certified carbon balance printer, we're always, I guess we're always looking as a business, what's next? What can we do next? What can we do that's different? How can we um, add more leverage onto what we've already got? And I don't know if any of you guys are aware of uh, a, a, an organization or a, um, a, a thing called B Corp, but B Corp is all about putting, obviously, you know, um, people, ethical, all these kinds of things before profit, right? So as a business, that's something that we're looking into. And I, I think there might be one other print company in the UK that's a B Corp organization. So I think the way people make decisions and this is about I want to leave you on the way people make decisions and the way people do business. There are many, many, many things that people can do, whether they've got accreditations, whether they sign up to something like B Corp, whether they, which obviously involves other things around changing legal statuses and all kinds of stuff. But there are lots of things that people can do. And, and I think that um, sometimes there's no right or wrong. And I think Karthik mentioned this earlier. It's about what works for your business and about what works for your clients. And, I see if a, if a business can just do one small thing, it's a small thing that they weren't doing before and it's a small thing that's making a bit of a difference. So it doesn't need to be epic. If you can do epic, fine. You know, even little things like, you know, and I know Avery ASA is a massive business, you know, free training. How powerful is that free training? That's not, that's not just supporting, you know, that's just not them looking at sustainability. That's given their customers, just general Joe public, information and guidance about how to make them more sustainable. So I think that's really important as well. Thank you, uh, Dave. Logic now to go to uh, to go to Ava. I know there's obviously a lot of different new technologies out there in the continuing to be advanced um, and researched by plenty of different scientists and probably the government as well. So for different businesses, it's likely that different technologies will work. Um, what might work for AESCL might not work for another SME, for example, such as voltage optimization. Um, that's great within a manufacturing business. It works very well, um, whereas it might not work for an office environment that you might not see much of a return on, of, on investment or emission savings. So I think in terms of where we go with technologies, I think there needs to be more from the government, um, maybe a little bit more sort of advice out there for businesses, what will work for other businesses that might, for whatever industry it may be. Um, at the moment, I'm not 100% sure in terms of what incentives there are available. Um, for our business, we've sort of, we never, we've never really researched the funding and what incentives there are. It's kind of, we implement something because it's the right thing for us to do. Um, so I know, for example, um, if you look at energy storage in UPS, they're, 
there is a way that you can actually make money from from feeding that back into the grid. Um, we only established that because I accidentally fell upon it. Um, I, I, it, it was just something that I'd seen on online. Um, and as an example, so we invested £400,000 into a battery. Um, we've had it in for just over two and a half years. And over the last two years, we've been able to um, make £55,000 each year. So just over £100,000 we've had back from just feeding it back into the grid. Um, when it's needed so there are obviously different incentives out there and I think a lot more needs to be done in terms of understanding what they are um, and especially from AES sales point of view but as I say we sort of just go ahead with it because it it feels like the right thing to do for our business. Um, Charlotte Killy. Hi there yeah so um, in regards to the um, stuff that we kind of do in regards to this I think it's it's a lot I think we do a, a product called the Tisano Chemical Free Cleaning System, and in re, in re, regards to you know reducing carbon footprint and stuff, that's that's a huge thing because they you know it's the delivery of, of chemicals to site. They're producing everything that's chemical free on the site, um, and you know no deliveries of chemical. Like I said before, no plastic bottles going to landfill. Um, so yeah, Tisano is is a is a really great um, product from that point of view. How it, it can really benefit our, our customers and clients, and obviously it's what we are cleaning our premises with. Um, also, you know the other th- products that are available that we've been trying to implement is also like the solar panels. Like I said about the the um, the uh, vehicles as well that we're meant to be moving to so uh so yeah there's um there is quite a few things i'm trying i'm trying not to overlap with also what i know april's really be going on to say as well with us both coming from the same business so uh but yeah the, to know the, the chemical free range is definitely one that um that we know a number of of our clients have, have really taken to to implement to to be able to reduce the carbon footprint and we've got customers Wimbledon using it like um Tiffany's and Co who are using it to clean the jewellery in and things like that so it's um we have some you know Rolls Royce I'm trying to think of some of the places that are using it that are using it for that reason which um which is really great so so yeah. Thank you uh Charlotte and we'll hand over to April. Yeah um so one of the biggest things that so over the last year since COVID started, obviously the climate has changed, especially for cleaning. Our industry has changed massively over the last year. Um, more pressure, um, a lot of new products being introduced purely because of what's happened. Um, so what we've seen as a company is the direction more towards cobotics. So the idea of amalgamating cooperation and robotics, so working robots alongside people, something that Charlotte touched upon earlier. Um, But with that, the technology that's coming with that is so forward thinking and it opens up so many opportunities. Um, We've got hospitals taking this on because the technology is almost... It's so advanced. Um, As a company, we always want to be innovative. That's one of our main aims. So we are one of the first one of the first businesses in the country that have taken this kind of level of innovation on and this is where we see the future going um, within the range we have a couple of different models we have one that use 70 percent less water um, and there's stats out there for example in i think it's an american study that 40% of businesses' water goes on cleaning, cleaning outside, cleaning interior, also takes up a lot of 
workers' time. So by saving 70% of water, again, it's just, it's all aiding in that sustainability. It also have a, um, a, we also have a robotic that pulls um, weight, so bins, etc., which will reduces carbon footprint, so emissions from vehicles, etc. So all these kind of things are just they're they're the first stepping stone towards what we see as a massive change and a massive change in the dynamic, and it will really help everybody. So we're putting this into companies to help support them, and people are buying into it. People love it. That not only is it just amazing in what it could what it can do for you, but it has the humanized factor it can talk to you it can rap to you it's really cool <laughs> and so i think by tying all this together it's a great way of it's a great incentive because they'll be able to save money they'll be able to adhere to then uh, their green initiative but this technology really is opening up a new world for us sounds brilliant thank you uh, april uh, jack at henry boot yeah thanks james i i, I think the evolution of technology is is really exciting and how quickly it's moving is is phenomenal as well and i think in our kind of sector the built environment sector you know obviously everybody in in this country and in and in the city of sheffield we all use buildings for for work for home for recreation and there's a really kind of changing expectation requirement that you know the buildings you use whether it's your your home or whether it's your office or whatever it might be is is more sustainable and so for us it's it's interesting seeing the developments in things like building materials and and how kind of you know new buildings are becoming more sustainable but actually how we're making sure that our older older existing buildings are, are kind of uh, looked at in that that's that way as well but actually i think just to kind of circle back to where we started around kind of it you know engaging people and, and behavior change one of the one of the biggest changes and, and this has obviously been hugely accelerated by covid but but is what we're doing now you know working remotely and utilizing technology to connect people in a you know who aren't sat in the same room and i think you know if, th- if this conversation had happened two years ago chances are we'd have all got in our cars we'd have all driven to the same space and we'd have sat and done this in person and, and obviously that i think we're all looking forward to getting back to seeing people in real life again but actually I think what will be really important with technology is is making sure as we come back out of COVID that we don't go back to just the way things were because it's convenient. It, it's it, how do we hang on to the lessons that we've we've learned from from the pandemic and making sure that actually you know you do start thinking: Do I need to get in the car and drive to that meeting, or do I need to to, to travel for that engagement, or is it something that can be done done remotely? Um, I think the other thing I'd say as well is with technology is it, you've got to be really careful to to get consistency because it's all well and good to invest in exciting a new technology and, and 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 do all that. But actually what people will pick you up on is the small things. So it took David Attenborough, I think, showing a picture of that plastic bottle floating in the sea for for the country to wake up and go, oh my God, we're using huge amounts of plastic. And so, you know, there's there's, in my mind, there's not a lot of point investing in all this brand new shiny technology if, if you're not doing the simple things as well. You've got to get that consistency across and, and that's how you're going to get that that buy-in from from your colleagues. Um, so I think it's it's a really good combination of being ambitious and, and, and you know, grasping the new technology, but making sure you, you don't forget the simple stuff as well. Uh, thank you. And Catherine asks, oh, Mitchell, we've not heard from you yet. In my view, if the technology is available for businesses, and they've got the funds for capital ex- expenditure to invest in it. 
and such technology will create more profit by reducing costs for example then i think businesses are positively disposed to using it but um the thing we need is is skills we need the skills to manage the technology and um, we need to invest in those skills and we need the skills to develop more technology and um again this this goes back to where we started with people and technology it's it's not they're two sides of the same coin effectively um we need to harness both so that um there's a change in behavior where people embrace new technology to um to adapt to new uh, road to net zero Brilliant. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you to all of our uh, panel around our virtual table today for some um, some really interesting thoughts and and certainly loads that's kind of got got me thinking about where we are right right, right now and where we want to be um, heading. Um, I'm going to hand over now to uh, Karthik for um, final thoughts. Thanks, James. I think this this has been a really rich discussion because there's so much that's, that's come out of this. Um, just just for this last session alone, I think we've gone from thinking about okay, taking small steps uh, and first steps, and just getting started and doing something. If you know you're in a position, we're not sure what to do, all the way through to some really amazing examples of technology and how you're using it, um, and, and essentially using technology as a, as a differentiator uh, and to show how you can lead the way. Um, and to make all this happen, you need that combination of skills. You know, as you said. Um, and above, above also clarity in, in what needs to be done, you know, where, where the, the, the money is, what the help is, what the options are, and what needs to be done next. Um, I think again, what we're hoping is sessions like this, um, again, going back Jack, to, to, to your point, we, it would have been far more difficult to do this kind of session a couple of years ago, uh, much more expensive in time, much harder to get people together. While this way you can build um, communities of practice, you can have discussions much more easily with people, not necessarily going through a standard process, but trying to figure out how we can do things together uh, to improve the situation in the region and within supply chains and within the ecosystems, whether it's in the UK or, or worldwide. So I think, I think this is, again, a really positive um, example of, of what you can learn just by using technology and getting the right skills together to have a, a conversation about change and what, what's, what's, what's actually possible. Well, there we go. A fantastic discussion. It really was brilliant to have so many passionate people from major businesses all in the same virtual room together. Now, for more on the road to net zero, check out the latest copy of Unlimited magazine. We're always open to your feedback and ideas for future episodes, so please do get in touch. The Unlimited podcast is hosted by Captivate.fm, the easiest way to create and distribute your podcast. And it's presented and produced by me, James Marriott, for Sound Media. Find out more at wearesoundmedia.com. And if you'd like to find out more about creating a podcast for your business, please do get in touch, james at unlimitedbusiness.com. Catch up with the current issue of the magazine, if you haven't already, at unlimitedbusiness.com. Take care and we'll see you next month.